Hi, welcome to Journey Through Scripture. We are on day 25, and today we finish the book of Genesis. So we're going to be looking at the final two chapters, chapters 49 and 50, um, as well as Psalm 15, and then Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, through chapter 18, verse 9. Beginning with Genesis, um, here we have another alleged deathbed scene, and the reason why I call this an alleged, an alleged deathbed is because um, this too is somewhat of a type scene where a patriarch is uh, believes that they are going to pass away, they're old and advanced in years, and of course they have no way of knowing how much longer they have left, and so they gather um, their, their uh, posterity around them uh, in some sense, <coughs> you know, his family, their family comes into them. Uh, and and they ish, have promises made, blessings and things like that. We saw this with Abraham when his servant comes and he has him swear uh, to acquire a wife for his son Isaac from his uh, his own family, from the family of Bethuel. Um, and then uh, we saw this with Isaac where Jacob ends up taking advantage of his father and now we uh, see it with Jacob himself, um, and we've already kind of seen it because remember in this in chapter forty-eight from yesterday, we saw um, Joseph by his side. And the reason I call this an alleged uh, deathbed scene is because mo- in most of these, the patriarchs end up living a considerable amount past them, uh, past these scenes. So it's not as if like they're literally about to die, um, but. That's kind of the thing, right? They're they're old, and they they want to have their family around them so that they can say what needs to be said. And uh, so here we have uh, Jacob doing this once again, his second one. And he calls his sons, and he says, "Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come." And um, now I'm not going to go through all of the sons who are mentioned here. I'm just going to highlight a few of them because some of them, frankly, it's difficult to um, really parse exactly what's going on. Um, For example, like verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And that's all there is. (laughs) Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, that's not to say that scholars haven't looked into this and figured out what each of these are, uh, but it is to say that I have not. <laughs> so I don't know what each of these blessings amounts to. I can tell you, you know, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. That's fairly clear, right? That's This is this... Um, the future role that Zebulun will play in the maritime activity of Israel. It's also a little bit difficult to say, but I think taken at face value, this has the flavor of prophecy, although this isn't really, you don't have prophetic formulas here. You don't have like, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, or something like that. Um, But this does appear to have some kind of binding force on the future. And I'd kind of want to leave it at that. I don't want to say that Jacob is here determining destinies or anything like that. I think we can only say what we know of the passage, and that is that Jacob says these things, and and a bunch of them do play themselves out in the future of Israel. So however we want to take it, whether as some kind of predictive prophecy or 
um, something that uh, sets the agenda for the future or however we want to think of it. All we can really say is that Jacob did say these things and that it seems to have to reflect the situation uh, in the subsequent history of the people of Israel. So let's let's look at some highlights. Um, Jacob begins with the first four sons, the sons of Leah, whom I've been speaking about a lot. And if you've been listening uh, really at all here, you, you know that um, there's this question of who will have preeminence among the brothers. And uh, the uh, first candidates are the, the firstborn uh, of Leah. And we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And as I've been saying, th- these guys are kind of like disqualifying themselves from that role. So I've been saying how Reuben uh, slept with his father's concubine, Simeon and Levi slaughtered the town of Shechem, and then there's this thing about Judah. So to confirm where what the analysis that we've given, notice what Jacob has to say about Reuben first. So you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And you kind of think of Reuben maybe being like, yes, of course I am. But then, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. I think that's an interesting little interjection, right? Like, it's all like second person, Reuben, I'm saying this to you, I'm saying this to you. And then Jacob kind of, it seems that he pauses and looks at everybody. He's like, hey, he went up to my couch. What do you expect? Um, and of course, that refers to his, um, the, the defilement of the of his marriage bed, right? That, that, that Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Then uh, Simeon and Levi, their brothers... And and it's interesting that these two guys are are grouped together. Um, Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So a couple things here real quick. First, this is obviously talking about their slaughter of the town of Shechem, um, and um, they they are both kind of uh, on this basis disqualified from having preeminence uh, preeminence as well. Um, and also, he says he will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Uh, in the future, these are the two tribes who who are kind of whose territory is most, that there has the biggest question mark over, like, where do they dwell? Where are they going to dwell? Levi, of course, dwells among um, all of the tribes as they are appointed as a kind of like a priestly tribe, Um, but that will be in the future. Um, And so these guys don't have as well-defined territories eventually as others. They are scattered throughout. Uh, The other thing um, that I think is important to note here is that this is not... None of this stuff is a sentence of like complete insignificance and it's just inevitable for all the generations to come. And we see that because just as uh, we've seen Judah kind of redeem himself, the tribe of Levi kind of redeems themselves. Um, this will happen, of course, um, after the Exodus, um, but in the event in the events that lead up to them becoming this uh, this kind of um, chosen tribe of, of priests and things like that. Uh, but 
uh, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I just want to note that this doesn't mean, none of what is said here means that these tribes have no future in the plan of God. Um, and then finally, well, fourthly, I should say, we get to Judah. And Judah, and, and this, again, confirms our uh, reading that we've been saying that that although Judah looks to be following in the in the in the along the path of his three older brothers who are disqualified, um, a significant hap- amount happens in the Joseph story to sort of redeem him and re-elevate his his status, and so his is Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you, uh, shall bow down before you. And notice how close that is to what Joseph had dreamed of himself. Judah is a lion's cub. There's the lion of Judah. First time we see something like that. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. So like, okay, Judah's a lion here. All right. His brothers are going to bow down to him. All right. Um, and then you get this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice what's going on here. Judah, we, we've got within the Abrahamic covenant, the idea of kings, okay? The idea, this this kingly aspect of the promise. And here, this is zeroing in, that aspect of the promise is now going to zero in on on Judah. And not only will his brothers bow down to him, not only will Israel bow down to Judah, uh, who is holding the scepter, the ruler's staff, but notice, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Um, The idea that there is a scope to Judah's range that is wider than simply Israel— there is an idea of the nations, and of course, in the context of Genesis, we've already seen that God's plan has in view the blessing of the nations. Um, now, when I when I started off Genesis, you know, I talked about how uh, the what God is doing in history that, of course, will eventually culminate in Christ is like a image that's out of focus that will progressively get more and more in focus. It will progressively become more and more specific, more and more well-defined, and um, indeed it yet has to take many twists and turns. But here through Genesis, if you just trace this promise that this offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, um, uh, and then uh, mankind is unable to really realize this hope, and so God chooses Abraham's family as as this, this plan of Part of, as being central to this plan of redemption. And then um, uh, these promises to Abraham start to flesh this out. And uh, by the time you, you get to this chapter, the covenant is fairly well-defined, what it's going to entail, that it will be generational, there will be offsprings to come. It is very future-oriented, what God will do in the future— History is going somewhere. It's not just you know cyclical and repetitive, but history is linear. It's going somewhere, and God is overseeing it. Um, and the among those who have been chosen to bear this covenant, which will entail the blessings of the entire world, the and again in Genesis that entails the crushing of the head of the serpent. 
now here at the center of this is this Judean kingly figure who eventually will indeed um, have dominion over the world, you could say. Shall him, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, there's a few other things. Uh, notice um, that Joseph, although Joseph is not Judah, right? He's not, he's not receiving this kingly promise. Ju- uh, Joseph, no doubt, is given quite, um, quite the amount of, of praise uh, for, because obviously he is a very upright character at this point, um, and we should not fail to acknowledge that. And note, too, that in the future of Israel, the kings who reign in the north, in the northern kingdom, because Israel, the people of Israel would be split into two kingdoms um, after the death of King Solomon, um, and the kings of the north will mainly be from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, Joseph is from the tribe of Ephraim, um, and obviously, I'm sorry, not Joseph, uh, Joshua. And Ephraim, of course, is one of the main tribes of Joseph. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what goes on there in chapter 49. And then uh, followed by, uh, by, by Joseph, uh, by, by Jacob, um, asking to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, where his fathers are buried and mothers, right? Uh, so this is the family burial plot. Bring me back here. Um, he Then Jacob dies at the end of chapter 49. He is embalmed. And um, and yeah, and then they go and they, they bring him back to the land of Canaan in chapter 50 to bury him. Uh, as they go through the land, there's this intense emphasis on the mourning, right? The, out of all the patriarchs, the most is made of Jacob's death. And um, yeah, uh, the, the people of the land notice what's going on there. And they're like, great is the weeping among the Egyptians. <laughs> uh, this is because uh, they, they appear Egyptian to them now. Um, okay. Um, then you get to the end of chapter 50, and you're kind of back in Egypt with the brothers. And now the brothers are concerned Okay, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. In other words, when Dad was alive, Joseph was uh, kind of putting on this face of of being nice and kind to us. But now that he's gone, he's going to exact his revenge. A very legitimate concern, I would say, for you know people looking at things through the eyes of the world, um, and they try to preempt this. Okay, they say. And they want to remind Joseph of what Jacob had said. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they want they want to remind Joseph, of course, of their father's, their recently deceased father's wishes. And Joseph comes back with this response that is one of the most classic verses, one of the most amazing things that is said. Um, that help us in kind of trying to wrap our, our our heads around this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and um, where is God when bad things happen to good people? Those those kinds of questions, and and we've already seen Joseph tipping his hat to this. Remember, we've seen him um, 
say things like, you didn't send me here, God sent me here. And here he just, I don't know if he's really saying a lot different, but he's, uh, it does move his, the concepts a, a step, for, a few steps forward, and it's very concise. Um, but here in chapter, um, chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, Joseph tells his brothers who are worried and concerned that he's going to exact revenge on them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, so do not fear, he says in verse 21, uh, for I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, I want to note a few things about this extraordinary statement. So, first, as I said the other day, it is Joseph's confidence in God's sovereignty that allows him to be forgiving, um, that allows him to treat his brothers well, even though they've wronged him in this terrible way. And Scripture often connects our a high view of God with our ability to act in loving and forgiving ways towards people who have made themselves our enemies. Um, we see this also, uh, for example, in what Paul says in the book of Romans, where he says, um, don't try to avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Um, you know, instead, love one another. If your enemy is hungry, give, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Okay? So, and the reason we can do that is because we trust God to justly judge, and God is the avenger. It is in God's hands, and as for me, I can, um, and it's not an easy thing, but I can love my enemy. Um, so that's an important thing, and we see this here, that because Joseph believes that this has come from the hand of God, he is able to forgive his brothers, and, and which is just this, this beautiful aspect of his character. Uh, the other thing, uh, another thing I want to mention here is in verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, this is the wording of this verse leaves very little room for interpretation of what is being said, okay? The, and that's because um, the, the it in this statement clearly refers to the evil that his brothers plotted against him. Um, that both are, uh, the grammar of the verse requires it. Uh, e the evil is a feminine noun in Hebrew, and the it pronoun is feminine. Uh, it clearly is referring to that. And so just think about that, right? The brothers, they meant evil against God, and they are accountable, against Joseph, and they are accountable for that, right? This is sin. God will hold them to account, and that is between them and God. Uh, they are fully responsible for their actions. And yet, God also, and even the same, the same verb is used, right? Meant, meant, intended, okay? You intended this evil against me, you, 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 but God intended it for good. Now, it's the very same evil, right? And um, so the very thing that they did and even felt in their hearts is taken and directed it, and that, that same thing is directed by God for the good of, of the entire people of God at this point. Um, 
it's probably, this is also, the final thing I want to say about this is that this is another place in Scripture, this is, well, this is a place in Scripture, I don't think I've described this before, but the word evil in the Old Testament can often also mean calamity, bad stuff in general, right? It doesn't necessarily always have this, like, deep ethical implication. Um, so, like, this trouble, this calamity, this disaster. But this will become relevant when we look, for example, in Isaiah, where you'll have statements like God saying, I create good and evil, um, I do all of these things. And the question, of course, arises about, is God is God doing evil? Does he do, does God do evil? Uh, and the word is uh, elastic enough to encompass both things that are morally evil, that are uh, blameworthy, I suppose we could say, and um, thing, and but it can also just simply mean, in a little bit more of a plain vanilla sense, I guess, uh, disaster, calamity. But either way, the the trouble, the calamity, the evil that the brothers meant against Jesus, against Joseph, is meant intended for good. This is it, it, it's even hard to 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 spin this to say that God just simply used it. Okay. Uh, the, in, in other words, it's this idea that, like, you know, people do crummy things to one another, but then God just goes then to plan B, and he says, all right, you know what, I could do something with this. Um, it seems like the sovereignty of God is being is here asserted a, a, quite a bit more strongly than that, because, again, notice the same verb that the brothers do is the verb that God does. Um, but in God's case, of course, because of his infinite knowledge, his wisdom, his infinite goodness, uh, this is not an evil act on God's part, but a loving thing. And Joseph realizes that, and and realizes that even though he was plunged into suffering, God um, God is doing something bigger. And I just want to always remember that, and I also want to remember the timeline. Um, So Joseph is is, is in the quote-unquote pit for like 20 years, okay? He's, he's, he's subjected as a slave. He's then a prisoner for this long time. And if, and if anybody were trying to, you know, if you're trying to reflect on, on the, the problem of the innocent suffering at, at any point in that timeline of the story, you'd be like, where is God in this? Where is God in this? It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 15 years. It's been 20 years. Where is God? But eventually, God does show up, and looking in hindsight, you could see, all right, yeah, I can understand this. I can understand that that God is is doing something great through this, and that doesn't mean we always can identify those things in hindsight, but I just, it strikes me um, how this impacts the way that we think of trials and difficulties and troubles in our lives, that we're only ever looking at it from a limited perspective. God looks at it from a God-sized perspective. And there are things that he did with... Joseph recognizes the salvation of his family, um, but there's even other things. Like, think of the way in which he he formed Joseph during this time and drew him close to himself and, and all of these all of these things, like the lessons that Job will learn in the, the, the next book we're going to look at. Um, so there's just so many things that the one who orders the entire universe is doing, that it's just so presumptuous for us to look at things from the midst of our suffering and say, 
God does not have a purpose in this. He's, he's out of the picture. He's abandoned me. No, God is with us. God, if we know him, then God is with us. Um, and, and that is enough. Okay, let's go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is a, a bit of a quick psalm, so we're just going to, we won't camp too much on it. It's five verses. It is a Davidic, another one of the Davidic psalms. And this is the question, who shall, shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, this is a kind of an incredible thing uh, because this is the sanctuary of Israel. Note that he calls it a tent at this point. Uh, it is not until David's son that the dwelling place of God in Israel becomes a temple, an actual building. Here it is still this tent that was used in the wilderness. And and talking about sojourn in your tent, that's an interesting thing, right? A sojourn is someone who's in a foreign place. Um, that's a very specific concept in the Old Testament. And so there's this acknowledgement that this that 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 under the old covenant under under what God has done through Moses and and all of that there's this distance between the people of God and the Lord and so being in his presence is a strange place for us and we are sojourners if we are there now and think about by contrast and we'll see this throughout the the rest of the New Testament as we read it that that in in Christ we are not strangers and aliens. We are we are children of God. We belong there. We belong in the holy place with God. But here, David, speaking at a time before Christ, um, the one who dwells in God's who is in God's tent, who is dwelling on the whole on his holy hill, uh, that is where the <clears throat> in Jerusalem, um, he is but a sojourner. And um, and here the the one who who belongs with God and and I don't think this is antithetical to grace. I think this is an acknowledgement that people who truly know God and walk with Him do have holiness to show for it. So it is He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, utters truth in His heart. Um, he doesn't slander. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take up reproach against his friend. Um, in his eyes, of, of uh, somebody who is vile, uh, uh, someone who doesn't fear the Lord, rather is despised, but honors those who fear the Lord, and even swears to his own hurt and does not change. His, his word is good even when it hurts him. He doesn't put out money at interest. He doesn't take advantage of the poor, in other words, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Yeah, you will you will dwell on God's holy hill. You are welcome to sojourn with Him, and again, of course, the hope of being close to God. Um, I, I think of think of the way that the Bible ends, right, with the new heaven and the new earth, portrayed as this giant temple, which is the dwelling place of God with man. That is our home forever, right? That that and and just this idea that in Christ we belong there. If it, we've got. Um, We've got a lifetime pass, and, and this is this is home with God. This is where we kick up our feet. This is where we can go to the refrigerator without asking. Um, so it's just amazing that even asking the difference between sometimes things that are said in the Old Testament and things that are true in Christ is, uh, is fruitful and, and very helpful. Okay, let's go now to uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through 18, verse 9. 
Um, so this begins with a, um, a man coming up with a demon-possessed son, who's di- and Jesus' disciples couldn't heal this, this boy. He could, they couldn't cast this out. And, um, and the reason why not is—and Jesus is, seems like kind of frustrated at this, at their lack of faith. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Um, bring him to me. And um, he tells them it's because of their little faith that they weren't able to cast this demon out. If they trusted Jesus like they were supposed to, even a little bit, even like the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Okay, this is faith to move mountains. Um, And just kind of underscores the importance of faith and trusting the Lord in serving him. If If we're not trusting him, to do the work and to do extraordinary things, then uh, we're not really serving in, let's say, full capacity. Um, It's very important. Uh, Then we get in verse 22 and then verse 23, uh, the second prediction we've seen now by Jesus of his death and his resurrection. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. not going to belabor this too much because we've we've seen um, we've seen uh, this before, um, but I, I do want to say that Jesus is saying a lot of things that his disciples find enigmatic and you know double meanings and things like that in parables, and so when, one could definitely say that when the, Jesus is now talking about that he's going to die. Um, that they'd be like, what exactly does he mean? Is this a parable too? What, what are we supposed to make of this? And, um, and the reason this is so scandalous, of course, is because they're following him, thinking that he's the son of God, the Messiah, the son of David who is to come, and his job is to rule, right? He's going to think about, think about what we just saw in Genesis, okay? Uh, to him will be the obedience of all the peoples, including Rome, and the answer, of course, is yes, but, but, that doesn't sound like being killed should be on the agenda for this man. And that's why it's just so so confusing for the disciples. Um, then we have this incident where these um, where where they are um, uh, collecting the temple tax. Uh, which is a two drachma tax. And I'm um, not going to go too into the background of this. But essentially, there's some controversy within Israel as to are we are we what is our financial obligation to keep up the temple, the temple of Herod, uh, because um, Herod Herod's temple, this temple that the that essentially Rome gave to Israel, is fabulous. It's very very nice, and um, and and yet the, the the Jewish people feel like this is our temple, and so we should be supporting it. But there are differing opinions among Jewish people. Some believe that you're not obligated to pay anything because the entire Jerusalem system is corrupt, okay? That would be like the people in the in the Qumran region, the, those responsible for the creation of, you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the Essenes, they are also called sometimes. Um, then there were some who believed that, yeah, we should pay, but only once in our lives are you required to pay something to the temple, and then you're good. And then there are others who think that this should be collected annually. So they come asking Peter, hey, is, whose side is your teacher on in terms of this debate? And are we going to be getting any money from you? And, and, um, and so he 
says fine, and then and then Jesus. I love the scene. Okay, he comes into the house, and it says Jesus spoke to him first. So just imagine that Jesus is hanging out in this house. Peter walks in, and before he even breaches the topic with him, Jesus says, "What do you think, Simon?" From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Okay, and that's a pretty obvious question as to what that means. But Peter, of course, is put a, put back on his heels a little bit because it's like, okay, Jesus knows something that was going on here. Um, all right, I'll take the bait. And the question, of course, is, uh, you know, if are the kings charge their sons for taxes? Um, no, no, they don't. Um, uh, they they take it from other people, right? And Peter gets that, so that's why he answers that. He says, from others. And then Jesus says to them, then the sons are free. Um, the sons are free to not pay the tax. Now think about the implication there. Uh, the temple is ultimately belongs to who? It belongs to God, right? This is the place where the people worship God. Um, and his point here is kind of subtle, right? That That... I don't have an obligation to pay, <laughs> well, by worldly standards, by the way things are done when we're talking about taxes, this is from a first century perspective, not from a United States tax law perspective, um, but um, because the temple is my father's and I am the son, I don't know the temple anything, <laughs> uh, this is my house, Um and, that, and yet, then Jesus goes on, he says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish, first fish that comes up and open its mouth and you'll find a shekel, which is enough to pay this two drachma tax. Um, so even though I'm not obligated to do this, I will do it so as not to give, not to put a stumbling block in front of them, not to make it not to make a scandal out of something that I really don't care that much about or in the grand scheme of things is not that important. I think this is an important principle in in uh, just Christian life in general um, that not everything that we could make a big deal out of and not everything we could dig our heels in on is worth doing it over and uh, Jesus here uh, shows that. Uh, Then um, finishing up here we go into chapter 18, the, up to verse 9, and there you see children starting to come to Jesus, and he purposely makes an object lesson out of them. This is not the first time that we've seen Jesus talking like this, um, but essentially saying, um, you know, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who is it? And then he takes a child and he says, unless you be- turn and become like them, you're never even going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is, unless you have, don't have this childlike faith, this, I, this, this, this trust, this simple idea that like we're not the ones who are running things here. We come to our Father for our needs. We are dependent on God. We are dependent, and, we're, and we follow Him with with this childish attitude. Not not in the sense that we're supposed to be brats or acting like children. But in the idea that that we're supposed to have the the trusting kind of dependence that children have on God, and and this idea that like I'm not some even if I'm someone quote unquote in the kingdom, I'm really 
no one. I'm I'm really merely a child in this house. Um, it's this, it's essentially the humility that he's talking about is is what it's going to be about being greatest in the kingdom. And indeed, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Um, and but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and it actually says stumble, it doesn't say sin. Um, you probably have a footnote there, and that is correct. Um, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, there is a question over this, and I, I'm cognizant of the time here, um, but it, does Jesus here mean literal ch- a literal child? As in, like, this is, uh, this verse would then be feed into the necessity of children's ministry, of, of ministry to children. Um, or is he saying, or are the little ones here the, um, his disciples? And in fact, he has referred to his disciples as little ones before. And so, um, I tend to lean towards the latter option that, but, but noting, however, that the children who are being brought to Jesus are are by no means um, excluded. Uh, in fact, they're Exhibit A of those who belong with Jesus as children. Um, I remember, like, I know sometimes you go into church and you know, it's a, if a family has a kid and with them, they, you might have a crying kid, or you might have kids running around the church, or or so, in some way being a minor nuisance to people. Um, but I think. How fitting is it that children would be running around in the people of God? It's not to say that kids' behavior doesn't matter in public and that they could just, you know, wreak havoc wherever they go, but there should be an accepting, welcoming, bending over backwards attitude that the church has towards children and a real responsibility to bring them up in the knowledge of the Lord. Um, um, so that's true. So essentially, you know, my where I come down on this is that um, yeah, the, the, they are examples of disciples, and so literally we should care very much for children, and we should apply this verse, these verses to children. But on the other hand, they're also we are also part of this. So I think it's more of a both and than an either or. Uh, finally, this woe to temptations to sin, and this is the idea: woe to to the world for temptations for for sin. And Jesus saying that. The idea is to flee temptation. He's already said this in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. It's not how close can we get to sin without getting burned, but rather how far can I get from it? I'm going to avoid temptation itself. And uh, if that and that will sometimes cost me. It might cost me a hand or an eye. Um, note the extreme language, how serious we should be against fighting sin. And I just want to end today by asking, Are there is there a proverbial eye in your life that has to be gouged out, or a foot that needs to be cut off, or a hand, so that tempt, you could be further from temptation? Um, that's something we constantly have to be asking ourselves as followers of Christ. So it's a little thought you might want to, um, to, 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 to chew on for, for today, and do something about it if it needs to be cut off cut it off. Okay, that's it for today. I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. Bye-bye.